Welcome to Shrink Up. I'm Allison Colarossi here with my husband, Dr. David Colarossi, and we are here for Shrink Up episode number 12. Uh, on, this on this YouTube channel, we talk about popular psychology and answer listener questions, my questions, and talk about all things psychology. Whatever else. Related, yes. yep. And remember, this is also a podcast, so if you can't get it on YouTube, you can get it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever else. I just want you to know that I went deep in psychology it's today. Like and I've never had this many notes. Well, I have so many that I don't feel like we can get through all of them. And I, I was like going off in my head, where do I start? Where do I start? So. Well, first, how was your, can we talk a little bit about your week? Because we had a fun week. Yes, we did. So I think the last, <laughs> I think the last one of these podcasts, I talked about the idea of systematically desensitizing Allison uh, with a tarantula. So I executed on that. I executed on the purchase of the tarantula and then made an attempt to desensitize her, but it was a rough, I feel like that was a rough, uh, I wasn't quite as successful. It wasn't, I wasn't quite the superhero psychologist that I was hoping for. Well, and I kind of think it's, tell me if I'm wrong, but I was thinking this desense was kind of like um, hypnotherapy, like you have to be bought in for it to work. I don't know if that's true, but that was okay. Well, well, I, there's a little bit of truth to that. So there's been a lot of research about um, depending on someone's cultural background, what's the level of assertiveness that the psychologist or whoever the practitioner is needs to have the clinician. So for people from some cultures, they respond better to a very sort of directive. I know what I'm doing. Move forward, touch the spider. Sort of very assertive style. And in other cultures. They like a much more, hey, when you're ready, move forward. And typically, Western culture, it's whenever you're ready, move forward, and you give the person the space. And I say all that to say that the, the, the clinician needs to change their approach based on the person so that the person believes that the clinician knows what they're doing and has their best interest at heart. <laughs> I'm not certain you know what I'm, I'm not certain you believe I know what I'm doing or that I have your best interest at heart. So I feel like there's more questions coming from you than the typical patient that I would be working with. All of those things, which I did not know. So that's very interesting. And also I think I respond better to, to directive. Personality type thing, you were like, touch it when you're yeah, ready. Yeah, I was and I get, was like, I was trying to give you some space. I am too. not ready. <laughs> she was never ready. I was <laughs> trying to like explain to her what we're gonna do. Like, here's the process. And she was like, all of this talking is stressing me out. Stop talking. <laughs> Well, it, which is so weird because like I knew I was scared of spiders, but I did not realize that I was that scared. And by the way, I got a, I got a small torrent. It's like this big. That thing is hairy and they are smart. Ours played possum. So anyway, that video is uh, will be forthcoming. Hit the notification bell and you'll get notified when that video posts sometime next week or something. <laughs> we also had something not so great happen. Um, we had to put our very special dog down which was harder than i thought too um after he was our dog for 14 years and that is a rough that was that rough. is a very rough experience which i was not prepared for that was the first time i've ever had to do that yeah it sounds sick but i thought that i'd be okay with it it was way harder it was way harder than i thought it was way harder on the kids than oh our particular my gosh day. yeah that it was really hard on our five-year-old um so I thought that was interesting. I did not, which is why you, I don't think we've been really in the mood to do a shrink wrap, which is why it's take longer because we yeah, had a maybe. little, we had a little bit of a loss. Yeah. Um, 
which was that's really sad. Yeah, it sucked. So, on that note, what we're ready you, to get what's started. The, what's the what? You got like a pile of questions. I know. Have you heard of mood freezing? No. <laughs> <laughs> I like how pop this. This is the, all from Psychology Today. Yeah. I feel like they have their own like lingo that I'm not exposed to. Well, I think they're getting like the new PhDs research, so like it's like the newbies. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah, a little I, bit more up to date. Yeah. Um, but I what I find it is so interesting. So, um, it's been originally thought that like emoting is like cathartic, and you want to go to a therapist and like emote all your feelings. Mm-hmm. Well, there is this pill you could take called mood freeze that's placebo it turns out it's placebo but people that take that pill um can control their emotions and so they were in the study they were less volatile um cried less um less outbursts um and it was a placebo pill what do you think about that I, i totally buy that there's been, I mean, similar. Did you know that just like when someone, if someone's grieving and bereavement or whatever, and they schedule an appointment with the therapist, their symptoms immediately decrease even before they go to see the therapist, just because they're sort of proactively doing something to to treat whatever they're experiencing. Like the idea that you are part of a treatment plan is in itself curative. So they say there's you know there's all different kinds of theoretical orientations that different therapists have, right? Some are existential, some are cognitive behavioral, right? They, everybody has a different approach. And the reality is that no approach is better than, you know, one approach is not better than the other, but both the therapist and the, per, the patient have to believe in the treatment. So I totally get that if you give somebody a pill and they believe that that pill really works, that, I mean, it's like... <laughs> well, I, I, totally I want to get into the ethics of this because... Like, I'm happy to buy a bunch of jelly beans for my five-year-old and be like, we need to have a mood freeze right now. (laughs) That feels really wrong. I'm just trying to think, like, why that exactly that's wrong. There is a little bit of, like, devaluing his his experience if we're, like, just eat your feelings. (laughs) I guess it wouldn't be a jelly bean, but what if we could make it, like, a a pill? A vitamin... (laughs) Okay, so... I know I don't like it. Okay. <laughs> I don't like because you bought. What did you buy? It was like a. It was like a. Stre- it wasn't a stress ball, but it was like a some kind of gelatin thing that he was supposed to squeeze when he was. Upset. No, we made was it. Was it was a calming. It was a calming jar that had like sparkles in it and oils, so like it would. So the like, <laughs> so the idea was that when he was upset, you'd be like, "Hey, I get that you're having some emotions." <laughs> Let's wrap that up with this calm. Go, go play with this toy. Sesame Street said I should make it. Okay, and I had a reaction to it, right? I was like, I, I kind of want him to be, I don't want him to think his emotions are a problem. Yeah. And I would like him to lock them up. So I don't know how to, it's a hard balance because like there's a lot of emotions and I, and there I feel is like a lot of I feel emotions. like objectively like there's a, a whole lot of those like great to, but I don't know what that line is. And I think that there is something yeah, that can only relate it to like if, if you go to see a, a therapist, a therapist, and you start crying, it's like sort of bad form on the therapist's part to hand you a box of tissues, because the impl- the implication there is, 
dust yourself, right? Stop, stop emoting. That's not good. Wait, you'd rather mm. them snot all over themselves? I'm always you confused leave, by the... Okay, you leave the Kleenex in the middle of the table. <laughs> they have access to it. Let them dry and clean up when they want to versus you being like, you got something. You know what I mean? You know, it's so funny that you bring that up because I didn't write this down to talk about, but the third, I read on Psychology Today the 13 reason, reasons why people cry or like 13 interesting facts about crying. And 30% of the time that people go see a therapist, they cry. And, you, and most of the time they feel better after they cry, but 10% of the time they feel worse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And men cry zero to one time per month and women, women cry two to five times per month. Two to five times per month? Yeah. Is that, do you I cry that much? I mean, but it did say that people that cry are more empathetic than those that don't. That was in it, and so. How are they measuring that? I don't know, I'm just telling you, I mean, psychology. I'm gonna argue that people that cry say that they're more, they report being more empathetic than people that don't cry. <laughs> right? I don't know, David. Is this, an is this a 360 evaluation of, of empathy behaviors? Or a self-report measure? Well, they did have resources at the bottom of the page that I did not look into. I'd like to test those. <laughs> okay, I have another study which is just very funny to me. Okay. Um, it's It was a facial feedback study <laughs> and those people, I guess they gave people Botox and those, pe the people that had Botox that were unable to like express emotions um, didn't have them and they were less likely or they were unable to be empathetic to other people <laughs> because they because yeah. they weren't able to move their muscles in that way yeah and i think that is so funny yeah so i haven't heard of that particular <laughs> so th this is not a surprise to me really? i haven't heard of that yeah there's a lot of different research about hmm. like botox being used for depression because it prevents you from frowning. So if you don't physically look like you're not doing well, then you actually psychologically feel better. Uh, did you know that if you put a pencil in your teeth like this and then read comic strips, you will laugh more at the comic strips than if you didn't have that pencil in your mouth? No. Because you've already got yourself smiling because of the pen in your mouth? That's interesting. So your, certainly your the way you think and react to things is influenced by your by body. So like, that's very interesting. I wonder, you know, if, with people with faceless and stuff, is it harder for I them? Know, like, what's the emotion that this is supposed to? <laughs> okay, there's so many thoughts. We could go down rabbit holes on that, but I just feel food well, for Well, would that. you, so does this mean that, are you thinking maybe you need to get some work done? To, is, that, is that where you're taking? Is that, is, I'm just wondering, is that the direction this goes? I mean, it's not going to change what I'm doing. <laughs> it justifies some of the some of your. Okay, um, here is another interesting tidbit that I read. Is you know how you're always supposed to tell like self affirmations, and self affirmations were brought to light by um, like on SNL by Al Franken. He used to be on SNL, and he used to say, "I'm good enough. I'm smart enough." And gosh darn people like me. That guy? Mm -hmm. Well, apparently those people are more susceptible, like they won't try again after they fail. The people that give themselves positive affirmations. 
Wait, what? That doesn't make sense. They're less likely to pursue a goal after failure, which is surprising. <laughs> hold on. If they're giving themselves. To, hold on. If the 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 <laughs> the type of person that gives themselves verbal affirmations before taking on a task is less likely to continue working hard after failing at that task. Yeah. Okay, but is that is that because of the affirmations, or could you argue that someone that needs the affirmations in the first place is less resilient? I'm really talking to a researcher. These I do not know. They did not explain that. Okay, but well that would make more sense, <laughs> yeah. right? They're probably if you're if you're having to say, um, you know, if you have to do the self talk, which is not a bad thing, but if you have to ramp yourself up, you're probably feeling less resilient in that moment than if you didn't even if it didn't even cross your mind that you were going to fail. Yeah. Have you heard the term fake it till you make it? Yeah. Do you like that or dislike it? Uh, I love it. You love it? Yeah, but but very rarely does anybody I share, that is not a good like coaching tool. Like that is not a good strategy to tell people that are not feeling good. But I, in the back of my mind, I absolutely buy into that. Do you remember the author of Vanessa Van Edwards that wrote Captivate, mm -hmm. that she researches people? Well, she was saying she hates that term, and I thought it was interesting because I've always heard from like everybody, you fake it till you make it. Mm -hmm. um, she said no because it. How can you be your authentic self with other people if you're faking it? And and I was like, huh, that is a good point. And so so I, what's her solution? Don't just say like I am terrified to be at this networking event. Like what's <laughs> what's the opposite of that? <laughs> Um, she didn't, she didn't say, she, she was just, but I think that would be a good question for Vanessa Van Edwards. I do like her book though. But what's the reason, so the book is, well you can tell them, so the book is Captivate. It wasn't in Captivate, she was being interviewed and she was saying oh. it just like, it's because like when you can tell when people are being super fake, um, right away, it turns you off. So, you know, if you're having a bad day, don't go to the networking event. She was giving tips about networking oh. and I feel like she had a really good tip about which I love is like if you go to a networking event you <laughs> you don't stand at the front entrance because that's when people are trying to get food you want to stand where people are walking away from the bar because they're looking for somebody to talk to yeah I thought her I thought her book was a guy would give it like a B minus like I thought it was I thought the first bit of it was good where I felt like I thought there was like very practical the, the book is about how do you improve your social presence or comfort networking you know if you're naturally introverted or whatever and I thought that the sort of practical pragmatic stuff was really valuable I thought that when she and it was a long time ago that I read it but I thought that when she deviated into like reading people's facial expressions like when she was trying to boost the readers emotional intelligence I felt like that was not only was it not practical or helpful I thought it would I thought that that would totally undermine someone's ability to navigate relationships like I to me when you start being robotic about how you're interacting with somebody the second you're in a the second you're in an interaction and then you're asking yourself what are they thinking and am I responding the correct way what's their eyes doing are they looking at me are they looking up yeah. to the left as soon as you're doing that, you are now no longer engaged in the conversation, and you're engaged in some other you're not activity. It's the yeah, it's the opposite of being present. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't like when all that like neuro linguistic programming crap feels so far away from 
actual interaction to me. Yeah. Wait, but tell me about the fake it till you make it. Do you agree with it? Well, I feel like in several aspects of my life, I've had to fake it till I make it, but I don't feel like I come across as, um, like when I feel like I'm faking it, I probably come across less confident. Yeah. Versus like when I'm comp, when I'm not faking it, you know? Yeah. But yeah. So, but there, there's no, there's no question that it's better to actually feel like you fit in that room. But if you, but to me, going into the room and faking it is better than sitting at the Starbucks and saying, I don't want to go in there. Agreed. Right? Like you have to expose yourself. I do think that, so I want to just follow up what I said about that, not being good feedback for people. Just counseling someone, you know, fake it till you make it isn't helpful because it's not tactical. It will be better to say, go to the networking event, you know, stand at the end of the drink line get there early so there's fewer people, those kind of tactical tools and help she, you fake it. Yeah. Right and she said, have a goal in mind. Like don't have a goal, like a goal of helping others in mind or, or like how you can contribute to other people versus how you can, because mm -hmm. she said that that's how, when she has the best networking. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting. Yeah. I don't know. I always like listening to her. Um, I think she's she's smart and has good tips. Just in general. Yeah. Okay, now yeah. let's get to the good stuff. What? Yeah, I'm. Do you want to keep not, going? Yeah, no, no. I'm, yeah, I'm excited about. It. I'm just worried. I'm hoping I can keep up with your. This looks like you. It looks like you went deep over here. Well, I really feel like I had to get the details in. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, we, as you know, we've just had an election. And there was a recent study that just came out, the profile of a conspiracy theorist, um, the role of government, trust, and technology during a pandemic. And so there was a new research paper that came out, and I'd love your opinion on it. So um, the, they were assessing a common trait of conspiracy theorists. Um, and the common trait is not any demographic information, any demographic traits or anything. Mm -hmm. It is basically distrust of government leads to um, the belief of misinformation. And that is the prototypical, prototypical conspiracy theorist trait. And this study was done um, with Robert Gonzalez out of the University of South Carolina and Ellis. I'm going to mispronounce his name, Mafoli, out of University of Michigan. And um, it, yeah, just those that who exhibit high levels of distrust towards government institutions are more likely to believe false information. And I think that's really interesting. And the, the study they did it on was a survey for Ebola. So not the current pandemic we were in, mm -hmm. but um, it was a study um, of the Ebola virus between 2014, 2015, and um, it showed that people um, had two thoughts, either, either the government was responsible for the outbreak or God was responsible. Mm -hmm. And those um, that believed the government was responsible for the outbreak were Wait, more- Wait, hold on, the government or God? Yep. Those were the two options that he gave? Or that they gave? Those were what, like, it wasn't the two options, those were the the, what it, how people mistrusted 
Oh, they either blamed God or yeah. the government. Mm -hmm. And the high levels. The God question. So those people that had one standard deviation increase in distrust, um, their likelihood of believing misinformation was a fourteen percent increase. So if they were one standard deviation of general above general distrust. Okay, well that makes sense. So if you don't trust the government, or if you don't trust anybody, then when Trump comes out and says, "Here's what's happening," you're not likely to trust him. You don't trust anybody. So your 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 behavior isn't different with the government necessarily. It's you don't trust anybody. Yeah, but I did, it totally makes sense to me. But I yeah. feel like it's interesting that they. So those people, it's not like they just have a general distrust. So to for me, government. the so to me that. Uh, that seemed, that makes a lot of sense. What I would be interested in, and I'm wondering if they did any other studies, uh, would be what are the personality characteristics, like um, what leads someone to be mistrust or dis not to trust folks in the first place? Mm -hmm. People that have that distrust, why is that? I think I want to know more about that too. Why are people so just and those people like they don't really change. So the people only a five to the people that were misinformed during the Ebola virus, there's only a 5% increase of them getting informed or 5% of the people went from not informed to informed or from distrustful to trusting the information. Um, only 5% change on that. Over time. Over time. So they stayed distrustful of yeah. the government. Is it? Yeah. So I think I, I mean, at my, at my work, I would be the like resident conspiracy theorist. <laughs> <laughs> but do you do, Inside. do you normally distrust people? I don't feel like you do. So I don't know. So I don't think I distrust people. I'm just trying to figure out like, well, what, like, what is it that makes me like I don't, I don't, I don't have like a tinfoil hat. But for example, when I can't make sense of something, I, I maybe it's two things. I'm sort of making this up, but on this on the spot here, I do not like to feel like I'm being taken advantage of. So like the idea that there's this big system and I'm just the pawn in somebody else's end game, I have a really, I'm very resistant to that. And so I don't think I. You know, it's not that I don't trust people, but if I if I do feel like you're mistreating me, I'm out. Like if you think about my, my previous employer, the second I felt like the owner of the organization wasn't treating me fairly, I'm out. R like I'm, I feel like I'm pretty reactive to that. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is, I think when things don't make sense, uh, people experience psychological distress and anxiety. And we solve that by coming up with. Some, we have to. We have to explain it in some way. So, like for example, I still have a hard time believing the Las Vegas massacre. The idea that that guy came in unassisted, carried all those weapons up to that whatever it was, the fortieth floor, and then shot people for that amount of time, and no one was able to do anything, and there's no videos of it, and that they couldn't. There was no sense. There's all these kinds of things that make me feel like what really what really happened there mm -hmm. and the reality is that i know that it's insane for me to think that there's anything other than one guy shooting all that no one's I, like i know that 
but it feels so uncomfortable un- uncomfortable to imagine that I could be at a concert and somebody would just start shooting yeah. from that I want to explain it and say well there's bad people and you know the government was involved or whatever this political party was involved or you know what I'm saying that's interesting yeah totally what do you think no I I well I have never heard, yeah I don't know I don't know what I think I think about like my family members that are globally distressful but it's interesting because I feel like you know my friends of one party are very distrustful of one party and my friends of another party are very distrustful of the other party um and I feel like the media plays into that but I don't know and it makes it worse so I feel like everyone's a little bit of a conspiracy yeah because you're constantly getting fringe information yeah and stuff that doesn't like add up or make sense yeah you know well like Epstein I am, no part of me thinks that he killed himself. (laughs) I'm totally on the conspiracy theorist side of that. Totally. I agree. Because it's like he did, it was such a horror, like I can't wrap my head around it other than to say something bigger is happening. And all those high, like too many high profile people that have lots of money. Yeah, I'm with you. Okay. Well, I just found it interesting, and I think you should go deeper. Okay, I have, here's the Wait, research. Wait, I'm talking. Hold oh, on. Oh, I think you should go deeper into this on a vlog and do some research and talk about, because there's probably a lot more research on this. Yeah. And I feel like that could be, that would be very interesting. I will. I was, what I was going to say is I hope that it comes out that um, critical thinking is a big part of it. <laughs> Like, if you're really sophisticated, then you deviate like this. Oh, yeah. Less of a lemming. Oh. That's you know, less of a lemming. Because we're both nonconformists. Um, uh-huh. I wonder how that plays into that. If you like, but you're not... Con- I don't feel like you're a conspiracy theorist. I'm not, but I'm definitely like a nonconformist. I do feel like you're easy to sell when I try and, if I think something's sideways, I feel like I can, you're, I feel like you, you're, you're very supportive in that way. Like if I'm going nuts, well, I'm then supportive. You, you are supportive. <laughs> Unless it involves, you know, folding laundry, then you become less happy with me about it. I want to take you back right now to your private practice time when you were doing marriage and family therapy. Okay. And I'm curious if this came up, but in the Journal Archives of Sexual Behavior um, by Dr. Sutherland at the University of Waterloo in Canada, um, they found that low sexual desire in women happened about 50% of the time. Do you agree with that? I, I honestly have no, no idea. Oh. I never had a... Honestly, I don't think I've ever had a client come in with an unexplained uh, absence of sexual desire. I mean, they will come in and say, I don't want to have sex because this happened. But they know? They're, they able, to, they're able to say, like, that I, I don't, I'm not attracted to that guy or this thing happened, and so now it feels bad. That you're, like, there's a, the connection is there, but, like, I never had the, I mean, I hear about it all the time, you know, the 40-year-old woman that's no longer... Or guy, for that matter, is no longer interested. Mm-hmm. That was never like a chief concern in my, but in, in my practice, and that could have been, by the way, that no one wanted to talk to me about it. Like that's very possible. Okay. When I was a younger male at the time, that can imagine them being like, "What's this guy gonna know about it?" That reminds me of another personal question I want to ask after this question. Okay. 
Well, so wait after the podcast or no after, after this? Yeah. So um, they were saying that the the they did a survey and they found out that it's like two reasons why women have low sexual desire. Do you want to hear them? Mm-hmm. So one is just like globally distressed. They're distressed about their relationship. They don't really like their partner. Life makes them have low sexual desire. The other one is just straight up sexually dissatisfied with their partner. (laughs) And they had a low sexual (laughs) desire. Are you laughing? I'm trying to make, I want to make some jokes about it, but I'm trying to keep this podcast PG. Well, I didn't want to bring it up because my parents watch this, but I just thought I would anyway. Okay, what do you think? That's interesting, well, I was just, right? It is. I just didn't know bring up what about... I thought you started talking about us. <laughs> no, I was going to talk about... I have an avert... Like, if I were to go to a therapist, I would never want to go see to a man. But, like, why is that? Well, I'll tell you what I think it is, and then you tell me why you think it is. Okay. No, you go first. Well, you're the one who has the... You have the symptom, which is not wanting to see a guy. <laughs> Well, I just would, I would feel like they would be like you, <laughs> which is like, <laughs> oh, thanks. which is, I feel like it just doesn't understand like my emotions because I'm a woman and I cry two to five times a month. They're quite, they're quite, they're quite complicated. <laughs> yeah. I feel like I'm, well, I'm complicated and you're not, you're simple. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You're making me sound like a great therapist. Uh, no, I'm just wondering, like, because some women prefer guys. Yeah, so the ones that prefer guys usually it's because they want to get the male's perspective, because they realize that maybe they're they can be complicated for their romantic interest, and they want a male therapist to, to sort of reality test with them. Okay. And then the other reason why you would want one is if there's any kind of like trauma or bad experiences, you don't trust men, then having a male therapist that can sort of substitute there and help you fix that. You know the way you think about men, um, but yeah, some. But yeah, I also don't want to go to. A, I would never want to go to a male doctor either. Like yeah, a I mean, physician. Everybody know? has their own hangups. What, yeah, or not hangups, but you just have your own preference. And what I always say is, if you don't really like your therapist early on in the relationship, first one or two sessions. Peace out. Peace out. The therapist's job is to make you feel comfortable. And like working with them, and if they can't do that, I believe in the first session, but certainly after the second session, I don't care gender or whatever the reason is, you should go somewhere else. Like the, you should not be using your therapy time to try and develop a relationship with someone that you're not connecting with. That part should be easy. Yeah, I feel like the majority of therapists that I've met, I don't connect with right away. Not as therapists, but like as individual humans, which I find interesting too. And I, I, um, my background is sales. And so like, I feel like just as a skill, it's it's been my job to create connections quickly. And I find it interesting that I have a harder time with therapists, but maybe that's my own hang up because like, I'm like, Oh, you know how they're always like, is he psychoanalyzing me? Yeah. But I don't know why you would think that because you live with me. I know. And I'm like, no, can't psychoanalyze me. I think, I mean, I think, a, I mean, I guess I'm trying to think, like, I guess I have a hard time connecting with some therapists. I don't know. Therapists are, it's a, it's a unique animal that gets into therapy. 
right? Are you like the, like the question has always got to be, well, why are you, why did you want to become a psychologist? And for some people, it's curative for their own stuff, which means that they can be great at therapy, but they doesn't mean that they're not awkward outside of therapy or dealing with their own issues. Yeah. I always wonder, have you read, um, maybe you should talk to somebody. Uh-uh. Maybe um, it's a therapist talking about like her journey through therapy, but also um, like her own therapy clients. I haven't read it. It's interesting. It's good. But um, I always feel like, how do you always like, how are you always present when, you know, in a therapy session? I think it would be As hard. a therapist? Mm-hmm. I think it could get difficult. Like just, especially if they're really boring, your clients or something. I don't, I don't know that I had difficulty with that particular issue. Like, because it's always, I mean, people are, if they're talking about nothing and it's not a productive, if you're bored as the therapist, then the person's not talking about anything of importance. Uh-huh. That's like a good way to, that, you know, and that you should as a therapist, I think, say, like, this is an understimulating conversation. What are we talking about? <laughs> Right? Let's move on to something that's actually important to you. You would say that? I feel like that would be a gut punch. I would say something, I would say it nice. I would say, here's how I would say that. I would say something like, hey, we've been talking for 30 minutes and I'm aware that the conversation hasn't been, like, I've not been interested in the conversation and I think that might be because you're not, you also are not interested in what you're talking about. Well, that's something direct. Like, Do you like think that. I can say that to people that are boring me? <laughs> no. <laughs> You have it when someone comes into therapy or coach or coaching for that for that for that matter, they're sort of set. They're 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 more willing to engage in a kind of a more okay. intense conversation. But you shouldn't waste an hour talking about the weather. Right? You have to make the time. You know. Okay. So should we move on to another topic? Sure. I have an interesting one. Um, antagonism or antagonistic personality trait um, is all is unfolding as a trait of narcissism so people that are in the study people that were antagonistic um, um, they were like also unfolding as a narcissist or it's a part of narcissism what do you think about that this was done by Chelsea Sleep in the, out of the University of Georgia. My concern is that every one of these studies that you show me, I, my immediate reaction is to say, this is a stupid study. <laughs> and I'm just aware that this is like, cause this is the second time we've done it, like the last, and I think that they're, that's like such good topics to discuss. And I feel like maybe, I, I don't know what, like, I'm trying to think like, why, am I, re- why am I rejecting every single study <laughs> that they do? Conspiracy theories? I guess, my first reaction is, how are they defining narcissism? How are they measuring narcissism? What percentage of people that would be diagnosed as a narcissist would self-report that they're a narcissist? Probably not that many, right? And, can I say one more thing? Mm-hmm. And, like what they're probably doing is they're giving somebody one survey that says, are you a narcissist? And in order to score high on that survey, you have to be totally comfortable saying, yeah, I do what I want. It's all about me. If you have the sort of, uh, if, if you're willing to buck the system and say that, then you probably have a more abrasive personality. 
It was self-interest, not narcissist. So they, they, people that scored high on like being high self grandiose, um, aggression, callousness, domineering behavior, grandiosity, manipulation, risk taking and suspiciousness. They also exhibited antagonism. But doesn't that seem like, of course, if you're aggressive, suspicious, yeah. Well, of course you're antagonist. I mean, that person sounds like a real asshole. Aren't so, they? But my favorite thing about these papers is being able to diagnose my friends she <laughs> or doesn't. people I don't like. <laughs> so they're antagonistic. So okay, I do think I psychology today is on something because like you read that it, it's interesting and you're like, oh, I know someone that has that issue. Yeah, let's put them in that mm-hmm. box so we that can box, just. Yeah. What do you think about? Yeah. Okay. Do you want to keep going? We can talk about sadism. Wait, I do want to talk about sadism. Why don't we, do you want to leave it for the, we can leave it for the next one. Wait, you got me all excited about sadism. Just, can we do sadism? Yeah. Okay. Do you think there's a spectrum of sadism? Because <laughs> there was what? another study. What? Okay, wait, what's the... <laughs> I, I literally, I think we should save this because it's interesting for the next one. I feel like it, we're getting 36 all right. minutes. Okay, in. all right. We'll do sadism next time. Thank you so much. Hit that like button, please. Thank you.